Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 5. You know, as a young church, we take our cues from Ephesians chapter 2 that says that Jesus is the cornerstone. And so we are preaching from the cornerstone out to understand who we are as a church. That's a great practice for a young church, but I think that's a great practice for an old church. I hope when we're here worshiping, maybe still renting the tap space 50 years from now, we are thinking and meditating and studying and worshiping the cornerstone. I hope we never graduate from learning who Jesus is and how in turn that that influences and impacts who we are. So let's look at Luke chapter 5, and I'm going to start in verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that we would listen as the sick and as sinners this morning, because that's who you're here to call, and we want to be those kind of people. And so I pray that you would give us that posture and those ears to hear you as we study your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. You know, one of the things that Jesus and I share in common, we've got this uh, connection between us. I hope we have a lot more than this, but we definitely have this is, Both of us love to eat. We love food. You think about it, Jesus is always eating in the Gospels. I mean, he's always eating. Think about the number of times in the Gospels. All we get is three years of his ministry. We need to focus on his teaching and his actions. But think about how many times the Gospel writers pause to say that Jesus is eating or what he's doing while he's eating. We've got the wedding feast at Cana, which we studied. And then this is the second time he's eating at the Levi's house, which we're going to study. Then they eat grain on the Sabbath. He eats at Simon's house. It's too crowded to eat in one place. Then he feeds the 5,000. Then he eats with unwashed hands, feeds the 4,000. Mary and Martha's house. Then he eats with unwashed hands again. It's becoming a habit. He eats at the Pharisee's house, the sinner's house, Zacchaeus house, at Bethany, the Lord's Supper, the road to Emmaus, appears with the 10 and breakfasts with the disciples. He is always eating and drinking. That's what he's doing. Where does he do his first miracle? He shows up at a wedding feast and does it there. What does Jesus do right before he gives his life on the cross? He shares a meal with his disciples. What's one of the first things Jesus does when he rises again from the dead? He shows up. He appears to his disciples. He lets them touch his hands and his feet. And then what does he say? Do you guys have anything to eat? I'm starving. I just died and rose again from the dead. What does Jesus promise that we will do with him for all eternity? That he will spread out this banquet before us and that we will feast with him in the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, in the very next passage to the one that we're studying, a group of people is going to ask Jesus, something doesn't make sense here. Uh, The Pharisees' disciples are always fasting. John the Baptist comes, and his disciples are always fasting. But your disciples, Jesus, are always eating and drinking. Here they are taking people out to lunch after church on Sunday. There they are in the neighborhood. They're throwing a block party for their neighbors. I go out to Bonefish Grill with my wife, and we're waiting for our table, and I hear Jesus, party of 13, and there they go the disciples. They're always, always eating and drinking. That's all they do. And later they're going to get the reputation to be gluttons and drunkards. 
Why are they eating? Well, Jesus says very simply, this is his main reason. You cannot fast while the bridegroom is with you. Who, many, who of you have been to a bachelor party where there was fasting? And that says a lot about the woman that that guy's going to marry. But you don't do that. This is supposed to be a time of celebration. This is, a, this is a joyous time. You can't do that. But I suspect that the second thing Jesus would have said is, eating a meal is way too valuable of a teaching point for me to give up. I can't give up the dinner table when it comes to expressing who I am and what I've come to do. Because as many people have pointed out, Jesus turns the dining room table into the pulpit. And he preaches what he is doing by sitting and eating with people. Last week we studied Luke chapter 4. And Jesus announced his ministry using Isaiah 61. He said, this is what I'm coming to do. And we said that he's able to do two things at once. He's able to show conversion and he's able to show community by reading Isaiah 61. This is, this is what I've come to do to save you. And this is the community that I've created. We said that converted hearts make compassionate hands. What Jesus wins us with, radical generosity to the poor, is what Jesus wins us to, radical generosity to the poor. So we hear all that. We're in a synagogue in Nazareth. We hear it. We see it quoted from the Old Testament. And now, flash forward to this feast, and we get to see this in practice. If you think about Luke chapter 4 as the seed, think about Luke chapter 5 as the seedling. We get to watch in action, a conversion and a new community emerge where Jesus has trod. And that's all we're going to talk about in our passage, conversion and community, and see how this plays out. So we hear this guy, Levi. Levi is another name for Matthew. He will go on to be one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, and he will write the gospel of Matthew. And here he is, and this is one of the shortest conversion stories in the Bible. I love this thing. Jesus was just healing and forgiving a paralytic. He walks out. He sees Levi working that day. He's at his tax booth collecting taxes. And Jesus walks up to him and he says, follow me. And Levi leaves everything and he follows Jesus. Man, there's so much to say about this conversion, but we'll just stick with two points. And the first one is this. Jesus finds Levi, not the other way around. Jesus is walking. Levi is sitting. Jesus is the one who sees Levi. Jesus is the first person to speak, and Levi listens. Jesus finds Levi. Now, Levi was working in this neighborhood. He probably heard a million things about this miracle-working prophet, Jesus, who might be the Messiah. He probably heard from this guy and that guy, the people he was collecting taxes from. He had heard about Jesus, but he probably thought to himself, you know, what would the Messiah to be have to do with a guy like me? I'm a tax collector. People hate me and hate me for what I do. He would want nothing to do with me. And if Jesus had not found Levi, Levi would still be sitting in his tax booth asking that same question again and again. What would the Messiah have to do with me? But that's not how our story goes because that's not the kind of Jesus we are talking about. Jesus makes a beeline from the house to the tax booth because sinners need seeking before they get to be saving. And Jesus finds this man and grabs him. And the story of Levi's life is entirely rewritten. The second thing I want to point out is is the biblical invitation to become a Christian. How is it that we become a Christian is very simple. 
It's to repent and believe, right? It's not to attend church faithfully. It's not to memorize a catechism. It's not to give 10% to the church. Those are wonderful things. That's not how we get to heaven. We get to heaven, we become believers by repenting and believing. We confess our sin, we turn from it, and we trust in Jesus that his sacrifice on the cross completely covers our sin, that he gives us his righteousness. That's the gospel. Well, in the gospels, all of that can be reduced to two words. Follow me. That's what Jesus says to Levi. He says to him, look, follow me, because faith has legs. It's not just a propositional thing that we think about, not, not just facts that we agree with about Jesus. It changes us. It does something to us. And so Jesus can just as easily say to Levi, follow me. And that's what Levi does. You know, if you have little kids, I want you to think about preaching the gospel to your youngest kids. If you have kids that are zero to like three or four, I want you to think about preaching the gospel in the way Jesus does for Levi. I want you to, to speak the gospel to your kids as in following Jesus. Because when a kid is zero to four, they're not going to get penal substitutionary atonement. They're not going to get forensic justification by faith. All that good stuff is going to come later. Right now, they understand what it means to follow. And so when mommy and daddy are scared and we run to Jesus, they know what that looks like. When mommy and daddy sin against each other and we confess that to Jesus, they know what that looks like. When mommy and daddy are happiest and we are happiest in Jesus, they know what that looks like. They know what it looks like to follow mommy and daddy as mommy and daddy follow Jesus and you are laying the groundwork of the gospel. You do that with your children who are zero to three and four years old. And when they get to four and five and six and you begin to talk to them about putting their faith in Jesus, believing in Jesus, that's going to be like telling them to believe in their grandma and grandpa. What are you talking about? I've been living with him this entire time. I've been following him this entire time to ask me to make a step of faith to believe in him. That's the simplest thing in the world. That's how we, that's how we disciple our kids towards Jesus. Well, for Levi in this section, uh, the invitation for salvation is free, but it costs him everything. He's like a man who stumbles on a treasure in a field and goes and sells everything he has and buys the field so that he can have that treasure. He gets up, he leaves this lucrative career, and he follows after Jesus. And that's his conversion. That's two lines for his conversion. Well, the very next scene, we get to see the kind of community that Jesus creates because what he wins us with is what he wins us to. He is doing something and drawing us to himself, and we get to see this community. So what does a new convert do when he's invited to follow a Savior who loves to eat? He throws a dinner party. Verse 29, that's exactly what he does. He, he throws a party, he invites all his friends, and man, we have so much to learn from new believers. Because sadly, the longer we're Christians, the less non-Christians we, non-Christian friends we have, and the less eager we are to share with the ones that we do. But here's Levi. He's a new believer. He's excited to bring in his other friends to say, look, you've got to meet this person who has changed my life forever. And so he does that. But in doing that, it creates some kind of conflict. And so the Pharisees and the scribes come up afterwards. They probably weren't invited to the feast, but they heard about it. And they approach Jesus' disciples in verse 30, and they say, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers in verse 31, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. 
Okay, that's a little exchange that we hear between the two of them, a little misunderstanding of what it means to be holy. But, but in that exchange, I want us to see this chasm kind of begin to part between these two ideas, these two tracks, these two understandings of what it means to be the people of God and what it means to be a holy people of God. These are opposite approaches to holiness. These are opposite approaches to what it means to be God's people. And specifically for us, I want us to interpret and understand what does this mean for Columbia Presbyterian Church? What does it mean to understand these two different ways to be a community of God and which one do we want to be? Well, to put this chasm, to to articulate the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus and this misunderstanding between them, very simply in the language that other people have used, the Pharisees define holiness by who you exclude by who you stay away from, by who you keep at arm's length. That's what it means to be holy, by those you exclude. Jesus, on the opposite hand, defines holiness by who you include, by who you draw near, by who you touch and who you eat with and who you are with. So it's holiness by exclusion or holiness by inclusion is the phrase that other people have used. Well, I want us to look at these. The Pharisees define holiness by exclusion, by who you keep at arm's length. So they ask, why would you, righteous people, Jesus and your disciples, share a meal with them? They're unrighteous people. They're sinners. They're not like you. There's a parallel scene in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus is at a Pharisee's house and a prostitute comes in and begins washing his feet. And what was Jesus doing at the time? He was eating, of course. And the, and the prostitute washes his feet. And what does the host begin to think? He says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. He's saying the exact same thing that the Pharisees are saying. He's inferring if you really are a holy and a righteous and an upstanding person, you will guard the kind of people that you are with the kind of people who touch you and approach you, the kind of people you become associated with. Jesus could walk out of that scene in Luke chapter 7, and people might mistake him for being a friend of a prostitute. And that is not good for a righteous prophet, so thinks the Pharisee in his mind. That's, that's a holiness by exclusion. That's saying, I don't hang out with that kind of crowd. I don't go to these kind of places. I don't let this kind of negativity in my life. I stay away from that. I keep it at arm's length. And that is what makes me holy. Well, we shouldn't be surprised that there is a lot. There's a, there's a few grains of truth in what the Pharisees are saying. Some of what they are saying really does make biblical sense. And I'm going to give three reasons why the Pharisees could be right, but they're not right. The first of all is Paul really does say, look, you've got to be, if you're a believer in Christ, you've got to be above reproach. And he really says that to overseers. Too much embracing of sinners might hurt your testimony, might confuse other people. And there is a grain of truth to that. So when I, as a pastor, come and visit you at your home and the the wife is there and the husband is not there, or I come to visit you and a single girl is there and her roommates are away, I'm not going to come inside. I'm just, I'm not going to do that. That's foolish. That gives the devil a... a a stronghold in my life for temptation. It also gives uh, encouragement for other people to gossip about that. I'm not going to do that. That's just plain wisdom. When we have a guy's night, when we're at the public house and we're throwing darts and we're having wings, you're going to see me take two drinks maximum. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to drink more than that. That's, that's just wisdom to set limits and parameters and to be wise about those things. So there is a grain of truth to say you should be above reproach. Don't give people an opportunity to gossip. 
But then there's this kind of, of approval seeking that can happen in the church where, where you are so anxious to please church people who are over your shoulder wanting you to be this way or do this or hang out in this certain kind of place. And I want nothing to do with that. It's amazing how many times in Jesus's ministry he allows himself to be misunderstood. He doesn't answer the question, doesn't answer that rebuke, leaves something hanging, and he is sorely misunderstood by people who are trying to understand him. There is a way to do that. Well, secondly, embracing sinners might, might embrace the sin as well, right? If we're so eager to embrace sinners and dine with them and be with them, does that give freedom to the sin that they're engaging in? Does that begin to tell them that their sin is okay? And that's an honest question to say, is your embracing trumping confronting? Are you so embracing of your non-Christian friends and so eager to have a meal with them that they never once hear that there's a Savior who calls them to repentance and to follow him? What a tragedy. That's not embracing. That's, that's, that's a form of hatred to do that to a friend. That, that's not what Jesus is doing here. But... The Christian who folds his arms and frowns in the corner whenever he's hanging out with his unbelievers or when he's at a bar or when he's at this scene or that scene, that person has never showed embracing in the first place and will never win an ear to share the gospel with. Well, the third grain of truth that the Pharisees are saying, which was, has the most merit to it, is 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three: Bad company corrupts good character. You know, we get in situations where instead of influencing sinners, we're influenced. Instead of being a light, we, we enter the darkness and we absorb that darkness. That's the guy who struggles with drinking who evangelizes frat parties. That's just a bad idea. No good is going to come of that. That's the, the girl who struggles with promiscuity who is dating this guy to talk about Jesus. Oh, if we keep dating, I know he'll turn around. A little flirt to convert. That does not work. That's a bad idea. All of this means being wise, knowing yourself, being accountable. These are grains of truth that the Pharisees are talking about, but you see the whole of what they're saying is not true, that we are holy by who we exclude and who we distance ourselves from. Well, Jesus says the exact opposite. He says, I reject that, and he paints a picture of holiness by inclusion of who you draw to yourself in direct contradiction to the Pharisees. He defines and centers his mission and his holiness on the kinds of people he's bringing to himself. Put simply, he's like a doctor attending sick people. Jesus comes for the sinner. So this, this party that Levi throws, this is not some kind of awkward concession for a new believer. Jesus doesn't whisper to his disciples when they're going over to Levi's house, I'm sorry, guys, Levi doesn't know any better. He's a new believer. Let's have a glass of water, sit in the corner. We'll leave in an hour. This is not a concession for Jesus. This is where Jesus wants to be. He's delighted that Levi would throw a party. He's delighted that he could spend the evening with people who are going to be dropping the F-bomb and drinking a little too much because Jesus is here for the sick. He's here for the sinner. These are the kinds of people that he wants to spend time with. This, folks, is radical. What Jesus is painting here is radical. In fact, the way he paints it, and by using Levi, might almost be a little too radical for us and where we're at right now because Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors. Now, tax collectors were absolutely despised by fellow Jews for two reasons. They were cheaters and they were traitors. So they cheated people. They took more money than was asked of them to take, and they took advantage of that, and they lined their pockets, and they got rich off of middle class and poor people. 
Well, there were also traitors. They worked for the oppressors, the Romans. And because of that, they were doubly despised by everybody around them, which is so shocking that Jesus would approach this man. I bet you there were people in Jesus' retinue, people who were following him, who said to him at this point, Jesus, I can go with you to the paralytic. I can go with you to the widow. I can even go with you to the prostitute. But, but a tax collector is too far. This is not someone who's oppressed. This is oppressor, an oppressor. This is someone who has hurt other good and well-meaning people. Tax collectors have done a lot of damage to our community. Jesus, I will be part of a kingdom that includes the prostitute and the sinner, but to go with the tax collector is going too far. Jesus is gathering a sickly kingdom. It's full of sick people, and a lot of the sick people that come into the kingdom are not cool. It is not the kind of people that we want to be around and be associated with. And a lot of us will have a line to draw in our conscience of who the invitation to come to Christ is offered to, right? Some of us will say, I can go with you this far, but not that far. So Jesus takes us right to the nth degree and he says, look, I'm hanging out with a tax collector. This man has hurt good people and he's the one who I'm hanging out tonight and his friends. And by doing that, Jesus is proving, look, even people who hurt people are sick. And I'm a physician, and that's where I spend my time, with the sick, with the sinner. What, what does this look like? What does this begin to look like for our church? How do we at Columbia Presbyterian Church define holiness and think about our mission? Is it by who we include or who we exclude? How do we reflect in this room and in our life groups and in our hangouts that we are part of this sickly kingdom, a place where sinners are welcome to come to us? Is this the kind of church where we can be transparent with our own sin? Can we in our life groups, can we over a cup of coffee, look a friend in the eye and say, I'm not the person that you think I am. You think I live this kind of life? You think my heart is in this place? You think I do a lot of good things? That's not who I am. This is what I carry with me. This is the struggles that I have in my heart. This is, this is the way anxiety suffocates me. This is the way my lust runs rampant. This is, this is how greedy I am. Is this a church for sinners? Is this a place where we can practice on each other as Christians and say, I tell you, friend, I am not the person that you think I am. I want to be. I want to look more and more like Jesus, but I don't. And my heart is not there. Will you embrace that kind of Christian? And out of that, is this the kind of church then that I can bring any kind of person? Can I bring someone to church on Sunday morning who's going to drop the F-bomb at the coffee hour and that won't be a scandal for our church? Can I bring my friends to a guy's night or to a ski trip and here's John and here's his boyfriend that he's dating and nobody's going to squint and try to figure this out and understand this? Is this the kind of place where we are not going to assume that everybody in the room is already a Christian and agrees with everything that we're saying? Can we be that kind of church that embraces in that kind of way? Is this the kind of church where in our life groups we are going to serve and not to be served? Because I'll tell you what, there is a cool kind of sinner to embrace, and there's a really mediocre kind of sinner to embrace. I think it would be really cool if we had gang members in our life groups. If you had somebody from the G-Shine gang that came to your life group and he was strapped, that's awesome. That's, that's memorable. You could tell other people about your life group, and it's like, that's really cool. You guys reach out to gang members. What about the mediocre sinner? 
What about that guy who is so self-absorbed, he just dominates the time. He's always talking and never asking questions. That's just kind of a lame sinner to embrace. What about that girl who's just so insecure and shy that you can't get two words out of her? Do we embrace that kind of sinner as well? I mean, that's just kind of such a mediocre sin. But that, I tell you, is where the rubber hits the road to say, how are we defining holiness? How are we thinking about what it means to be a church for the sick and for the sinner and not for the righteous and the well? Not the people who say that they're okay. You know, I use this illustration all the time because I love it. I was looking on a church website. They had tabs for different things, the vision, the mission, the values, the doctrine. Clicked on the doctrine tab, and it was the most brilliant explanation of doctrine I've ever heard. It was one sentence, and it said, you come and live with us for a year, and you tell us what our doctrine is. That's just genius. You know, anybody can write anything, the Nicene Creed, stick it up there, everybody signs their name, and, and you're not held accountable to that until I live with you for a year and see, see, do you really believe in one Father and in the Holy Spirit and a kingdom that has no end? If I see that, then I believe that you believe it. Well, what would that look like for us as a church if we had a tab that defined our holiness and instead of giving a rich theological explanation for it, we simply said, you know what? You've got to come to our house and have dinner. You've got to see the kinds of people that we invite around our dinner table, the kind of block parties we throw, the kind of s'mores around the fire pit we have, and see who's there, and to see how we're honest about not having our own lives together and willing to confess our own sin to people, even unbelievers. And then you tell me how we as a church define holiness. You tell me as a church how we are a converted people where converted hearts make compassionate hands, where we are living out this community that Jesus calls us to. You tell me. This is what Jesus desires. There's no bait and switch here. He's going after sick people so that sick people will attract sick people so that those sick people will attract sick people. There's no switch in the game plan here. This is the mission that Christ has called us to. This is what he's called us to. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a high calling. I pray, I pray, and I plead, Lord, that you would make us a people who are honest with our own sin, that we are ready and willing to confess that we do not have our lives together, and that in doing so, we would be eager to invite into our own midst fellow sinners and fellow sick, that you would make us a part of this sickly kingdom where, where our friends and our neighbors and our co- coworkers feel, feel welcome in our midst. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.